0: All right. Well, welcome to the discipling class. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. All right. I'm excited to teach this class. Um, and uh, this is this is round two of teaching this similar material. I taught it. I think it was back in 2018 um, as a class. So got a little more experience since then and um, learned from you guys. So we're excited to get back into this uh, into this topic. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Clay Mackey. I'm part of the pastoral staff here. Been on staff for about five years ish. I think that's right. So um, yeah, we enjoy it. It's my wife Mary. For those of you who don't know her. And if I've never met you, I'd love to meet you um, at some point after class. So why don't you just introduce yourself? Well, the class is called Discipling, and the goal is helping others follow Christ, becoming better disciplers. So I stole this title from a book called Discipling. How to help others follow Jesus. <laughs> so, I'm just curious, who has come to faith in the last year? Raise your hand. I'm gonna give this away, by the way, to the youngest <laughs> Christian in here. Okay, the last two years. Got some old Christians in here. The last three years. The last four years.
1: The old people here. <laughs> the last
0: five years. Wow. The last six years. Okay. Okay. We got, I, got a, I, I got a competition here. Yours. One of you guys. So, when did you come to faith in Christ? Seventh <laughs> grade. Can't do math. I'm a Bible teacher. What? What month? What month? Ish. It Wow, this cool is,
1: this is tough. Can you pass the quiz? No. What
0: number am I holding up behind my back? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One. You. Uh,
2: five. That's okay. Three.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Wow, that was a lot harder than I thought. Just trying to give books away. All right. That book is by um, Pastor Mark Dever. He's written probably the. Um, there's some seats in here, guys. Can we scooch? Can we, can we make some room? You're not you have a broken collarbone. You don't need to grab chairs. Hey, uh, Luke, go help him grab some chairs. You get the guy with the broken collarbone grabbing chairs. That's not, not a good not a good call. All right. So that book, where I, was out, where I was going, is that book is by Pastor Mark Dever. He's from Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And um, he's probably written the clearest book, in my opinion, the shortest and clearest book on discipling, the actual the process of, of discipling others. So I would really recommend that to you um, for a good read if you want to. All right, so I'm curious. Why are all of you taking this class? What do you hope to accomplish by the class? It's just like the only one. You were taking Tim's class previously. You really wanted to hear about the Pentateuch, and now you're in here um, to hear about discipleship. But just curious, what do you hope to learn?
1: How to help people.
0: Okay, great. How to help people. How to help people what? Eat Cheerios? No. No. Eat the Word. Okay. There we go. Eat the Word. I like that. All right, how to help How to help people. Eat the word or grow. Good. Is that pretty unanimous? Yes. How to be
2: teachable
0: in that. How to be teachable in that. Good. Yeah. Great. Excellent. How to be more effective in it. How to be more effective in it. Yeah. Are you guys overall um, encouraged or discouraged when it comes to discipling other people? Is it intimidating or is it like, oh, yeah, I really want to do this. Intimidating. Raise your hand. Depends on the group. I've got my hand raised, by the way. Okay. Yeah.
1: One-on-one's all right, and a group setting might be different.
0: Okay. So you're more comfortable one-on-one, less comfortable in a group. I
1: feel like if I knew
0: more about it, I might be intimidated. Ignorance is bliss. That's really true. Yeah, it's true in a lot of ways. Yeah. So how else? What just initial feelings before we jump into this topic? I, I, I want to kind of know where you guys are at. So overall intimidated? Some of you guys are intimidated by the, by the prospect? Why? i
2: probably like to learn to be more patient, like with the process. Because sometimes in discipling people, it's very easy. They're very quick to learn and, and submit to the word. And then other times it's like you feel like you're hitting a brick wall yeah. And so just being patient with process that it
0: takes. Yeah, totally. I feel you. Being patient—that's good. I'm just—I'm curious. You guys have got to talk to me, okay? Or I'm just going to start teaching, and you're going to regret it. All right. <laughs> so what—what what are some discouraging factors? Willie? Yeah, go ahead.
1: Uh, yes. Um, I'm uh, trying to disciple my grandchildren. I have seven grandchildren and seven great grandchildren. Um, 83 now. By You're 84. Going on 84.
0: 84 and still learning. We should swap spots. <laughs> that's right, that's right. You and Brother Asher need to come up here and and, and teach. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have the,
1: uh, the great grandchildren are coming up in uh, the next uh, one, so I'm experimenting with the first seven. seven more coming up after next <laughs> Hopefully, if the Lord lets me live, I'll, I'll be able to uh, help them out a little bit. better. Um, yeah, I've got a lot to learn. learn. I mean, I just started with this.
0: It, it is exciting. It is a bad, bad challenge. A huge challenge. Sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's exciting. and It's a challenge. It's a great, great summary. Yeah. And so as we go, we'll learn. We're going to learn together. I think that nobody has the corner on discipling. Uh, only Christ has the corner on discipling. Praise the Lord. Um, he is the chief discipler. And he energizes all of our efforts. Yeah. Brother Ashton?
1: Um, I'm getting pretty old. I turned 91 this week. But uh, maybe God has something more for me. Uh, I, I, I'm looking at it that way. Uh, I've got grandkids, too. i got great grandkids. But uh, we have so many LU students here on Sunday morning. And, and, and uh, they're, they're away from home. I remember when I was waiting on yuck. And, uh, <laughs> but um, just to uh, communicate with them, welcome them, yep. let them know that you're not an oddball because you're coming to old people's hearts, church. I mean, uh, and, uh, and, and I've had some wonderful connections with some sure. of these young people from uh, you. Yep, And uh, as an example, Last May, uh, Natalie uh, came to me and she said, would you be my pen pal? What? This 19, 20-year-old girl wants to be a pen pal with this guy nine years old? And um, she wrote me two letters. I wrote her two letters. And and I've just been encouraging some of these uh, young couples and so on and I bake cookies and bring them and say, "Here, yeah, take these and to your daughter and share them." You know. Um, and I Claire was here last Sunday with her parents, and I said, uh, "Now the cookies that I brought a week ago, we gave them to Did you get any?" She said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Wait till I see now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> she consumed those things. <laughs> ways in which you can minister to the people. I had a man to cut a big tree, an elm tree, big tree, and cut it down and cut it in the logs, and, and we needed to cut, get it cut up and split. And, and my daughter put it on Facebook, you know, and all this mess, and so, anyway, the guy came with his son to do it. And the guy was a little guy, I think about 11, 12 years old, and they had two axes, and they went to work at, and worked for about three hours. And uh found out that the boy was homeschooled. And um, I s- told the father, before they finished, I said, I want to tell you something. You are building a character in this young guy. 11, 12, 13 years old. And here he's working with an axe and working for three hours.
0: Yeah, amen. That's good. Yeah, Brother Ashton just, he talked about uh, a principle we're going to look at being proactive. In our discipling, and uh, and something else he didn't mention here, uh, but I'm going to brag on him a little bit, is I know he prays diligently for our students. Uh, they talked to me about his prayer list and getting on Ashton's prayer list. So, uh, so yeah, he's a great blessing to our uh, to our students. Well, good. Yeah, we, uh, there's definitely challenges. Uh, so we're learning together. That's really the goal of the class. Is nobody has the corner on this. We want to share and learn together, just how to be more effective in discipling. Um, I'll share some things as we go along. Um, but I want to hear from you, too, as we move forward. So, if you can look on, the, on your sheet here, <clears throat> your handout, did everybody get one? We're looking at some of the purposes of the class, so you can kind of know what, what's what been on my heart and, and the elders' heart here and why we wanted to offer this class. Um, but there's really three of them. The first purpose is I just want to give you a biblical vision for the what I would think, arguably, is the greatest task on earth. The greatest task on earth. Uh, the most privileged tasks that we have been allowed to participate in um, with God, which is the act of, of bringing others to Christ and teaching them to grow in Christ. Um, it's a sweet privilege. If you're a pastor or church member, doesn't matter. Um, we're we're going to see we're all involved. So I want, you to see a, I want you to get a biblical vision for it. So we all come with our own ideas about what discipleship is and isn't. Um, so we want to filter those through Scripture and see, kind of work from the text out. So that will be today. But beyond that, I want to help you begin to identify and overcome some of the hindrances that are in your life. So this isn't going to do us any good if I teach my guts out for six weeks and nobody changes. We don't, we don't learn anything or, or implement anything in our lives in terms of vibrant body life. So we want to be identifying what are, what are our particular hindrances, what are your particular hindrances, how do we navigate those and grow. So we'll identify a few of those each week as we kind of go along, as the truth sort of unearths that for us. And then last, I want to give you a practical roadmap for the discipling process. That'll be most of our time to go. Five five of the six weeks will be devoted to that. And what I mean by that is just what what could a relationship like this look like from the ground up? So if you've never done this before, that's okay. Great. If you've been doing this 80 years, great. Um, Hopefully we can all learn from each other. And, uh, and get a biblical roadmap for this. So we want to look at what all is involved in a healthy discipling relationship. So like I said, the outline of, of the course is going to be part one, kind of two parts, the, the vision and the roadmap is part two. And uh, today will be the vision. And where we're headed is just some of these aspects of, this, of a discipling relationship, which I've described here just in various ways. Uh, first just kind of go through these at high levels so you can know where we're going we're going to look at modeling and uh, no this is not the runway model Mary asked me if this is uh, what did you call it the catwalk catwalk? no it's not the catwalk (laughs) this is a uh, talking about being an example a disciple or who lives a life that's worth following so that's where it all starts starts with your relationship with Christ and how zealously you're following him how quick you are to repent Um, and we'll look at all of that next time and then you know when it starts with who a disciple is maybe the being part then next is kind of what a disciple discipler does which the first step of that is like ashton said it's befriending others in the body Uh, having your eyes open away from yourself and onto the needs of others uh, right here in the in the fellowship so we're going to look at what it means to be a discipler who lovingly initiates relationships many of you already do that so well that's we're going to be week three. Week four, we're going to look at praying, being a disciple who intercedes faithfully for those that we're seeking to disciple, those we've befriended, and what that looks like, the promises that are attached to, to a praying life for others. Week five, we're going to look at teaching. So that's really the heart of a discipling relationship. And lest you think, you know, it's going to be sitting down and, and doing what I'm doing right now with, with your person that you're in a relationship with it's it's less of that and it's more of helping someone discern what lies they're believing and the truths that they can replace those lies with so we'll talk about that week five and then finally week six will just kind of be our catch-all and we call it persevering so uh, a discipler who endures patiently (coughs) so there's a lot of challenges in a discipling relationship challenges on both sides for the discipler and the disciplee um, and so we want to look at what does it take to persevere in those relationships? When do you when do you terminate one? Um, what's the difference between discipling and counseling? Is there a difference? Uh, so how do you know when to when to wrap that up or keep going with with the relationship? And then and then also in in persevering, I'll, I'll try to look at uh, what it means to to replicate. So part of a, being a faithful discipler is when the person you're discipling is also discipling, right? So that's full circle. <clears throat> So that's where we're headed. And tonight, I want to dial us in and look at <clears throat> the biblical vision for discipleship. And our goal tonight is that we would understand this vision, understand what the Bible says, and we would joyfully embrace this vision. So we would say, "Yes, I want to participate in this." And so to do that, we need a clear view of, of what the Bible teaches and really just somebody asked me have you already did you teach this you know last year and in a way it's like yes the bible's full of principles and things you know in every book of the bible that's relevant to the discipling process but um there's at least three texts of scripture that we should look at and really sink our teeth into when it comes to discipling and i i guarantee you know the first one without looking at your paper what would the first text be when you think about discipleship Matthew 28, 19 and 20, so go ahead and turn there. Since we were following up a class on the Pentateuch, I almost thought about doing an entire biblical theology on this theme of discipleship, but I decided not to. I'll go against all my stereotypes and not not do that. So we're going to start in Matthew 28. There's a whole background to this, but... We're just going to skip over all that. I'll let Tim teach a part to you and fill, fill in the rest of it. But Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Let's read it together. We'll start in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is the clarion call from our king, and this is the mission of the church. Agreed? All right, I need your buy-in. Yes or no? All right, yes, this is the mission of the church, to make disciples. So that means you and I and the church corporately are not doing this, it's a problem, right? It's a problem because this is the the kind of singular command that encompasses all all of Christ's commands for us as a people. That's important to bring out because it's a command, it's not a suggestion. So I think lots of times we treat it as a suggestion, right? Like, well, if I'm gifted to disciple people, then I'll disciple them. But if I'm not, I'll just do something else in the church, But that's not what Christ is saying. Now we're going to see. There's a. This is fleshed out, for sure. And there is a variety of gifts, but this is a command that's given to to the church to be to make disciples. It's not one idea among many that the church can be about. This is the singular focus of the church. And I think this is. This may seem like a really basic, like yeah, that's a basic observation, but. This has to seep down into us is at the convictional level. Meaning we have, to, we have to hold on to the fact that Christ really has commanded us to do this. He really is going to hold us accountable when he returns, like each one of us. And there will be unspeakable reward for those of us who have laid it all on the line. No matter what profession you're in, you've laid it on the line to try to make disciples. The Bible is full of those promises of reward. And it's got to seep down in because... None of us really know how to do this very well. It's intimidating. But knowing that Christ is going to hold us responsible for this is a great sort of conviction, right? It's going to propel us past ignorance, past insecurity. Because we often don't know how to disciple. We don't know much about the process of discipling. But knowing that it's a command and not a suggestion from Christ will motivate us to learn how to do it knowing we'll be held responsible for it when he returns, and knowing that the rewards are unspeakably rich. That's going to motivate us to really get after this command. So to be a disciple, what does it mean? What do you think? Or to disciple, let me put it that way. How would you define the word disciple? To lead, <clears throat> not
2: to, That's not how I would define the word disciple. But that's what it means, to disciple is to help lead them, I think. Okay. Like, disciple means follower, so I think...
0: Yeah, if you, if you are a disciple, it means you're a learner. So you're a learner of Jesus. Yeah. So <clears throat> central to this is coming to him and learning from Jesus, right? And so if we're to make disciples, we're to make, to make learners of Jesus. That's the idea. And Jesus is going to go on here in Matthew 28 to help us understand exactly what he has in mind in this process. And there's really two ideas. What are they? They come after the command to make disciples. Baptizing is one. Yep. Teaching, teaching commands. And teaching is the other. Yeah. Teaching what?
2: Teaching the commands of Christ.
0: Okay, teaching the commands of Christ. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Right. So let's flesh these two ideas out. Baptizing. What is how? What would that stand for? Conversion. Conversion. Yep. So coming to Christ, so baptism is the rite or the, the ordinance that marks out a, a believer. It doesn't do anything, it's not magical, but it it signifies when a person has said, I'm I'm trusting Jesus. And it's a public proclamation of that to the to the assembly, to the world. That's what baptism is. So Jesus isn't merely commanding us to go and baptize people, he's commanding us to make converts, to bring people to faith in Him, which would involve sharing the gospel. Um calling for faith and repentance so there's a lot packaged in here but this is shorthand baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit and then the second idea is teaching so how would we flesh that out if this first one is about conversion what would the second one be about mentoring mentoring yep sanctification like progressive sanctification in that sense of progressively growing to become like Jesus yeah
2: Yep. Would probably be contextualized to the person, so uh, helping them overcome particular sins that are contextual to them.
0: Yeah, yeah. To to the obedience of Christ, right? So teaching them to obey the King—that's the idea. And the scope is all of the nations. So, as we step back, you can think about this command to disciple. So what Christ is calling for is people to be reconciled to Him and to grow in him. right? So that's discipleship. Discipleship is the big umbrella. There's conversion and edification. Or conversion, and a word I use a lot is maturation, meaning that we want to come to maturity in Christ. We want to resemble Jesus. We want to imitate God progressively over time, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So again, just get, laying a framework here in our minds for what discipling is according to Jesus, it's a command. It involves conversion and teaching to maturity, right? Helping people obey, learn to really obey Christ, which means they're going to have to learn to progressively be repenting from sinful lifestyles to, to obedient lifestyles. It's going to be an ongoing thing. And now, lest we skip over probably, well, I should say the most important because it's all important, but a, a hugely important aspect of this text notice what bookends this command in verse 19 well actually verse at the end of verse 18 and the end of verse 20 there are some particular things Jesus says they're not a command but they're statements what are those statements okay I'm with you always that's the that's the last one That's right. And all authority's been given to me. This is crucial that we understand this. First Jesus says before he ever gives the command is he has been given all authority. What do you think that means? Yeah, good cross references there. Daniel seven, uh, Psalm two. Yeah, the Messianic King has been raised from the dead. He's God's son, and he's about to be enthroned in heaven. And that means everything's under his control. He's in control of everything. He has all authority. Nothing's going to happen apart from his will or outside of his will. So he is in complete control. So it means to be in authority, and he has it all. Right? Is there any? Is there a modifier on that? There's not. He has all authority. In heaven and on earth, just to drive the point home. So why is that crucial for us little weaklings when it comes to discipling?
2: Because like we started with, we have reasons that we're afraid to do it. So knowing that God's in control is a reassuring
0: thing. That's right. That's right. Because our flesh, Satan, and the world are far more powerful than we are. Which are all of our all of the enemies of discipleship, by the way, and growth human deadness, all those kinds of things outside of of conversion. But Christ has all authority, which means nothing's impossible for him, which means his plans are going to stand, which means he's going to make sure to see this discipleship enterprise through. Right? So it's crucial that he has all authority and that we know it. Because if we think somebody else has more authority than Christ, we will not be faithful in discipling because discipling is hard. As we learned this morning, there's oftentimes challenges to the promises of like, whoa, is this really going to really happen? But to be able to trust Christ that he's going, to, he's going to execute his plans for bringing the nations into obedience to himself. Yes. So he's in all authority. And then the next promise on the back end is? He will be with, with, us. Us, will be with us. The end of the age. Yes. So Christ's personal presence to accomplish the mission. So he's personally with us in it. So this is this puts wind in our sails. It means that success, this is it, success is certain in our discipleship enterprise. In you and I's attempts to help others follow Christ, success is certain. It means he's going to help us carry it out. We often don't want to disciple. Here's a major hindrance because we are afraid we're going to what? fail or mess something up. Right? And guess what? You might say something wrong. You might, God forbid, lead someone astray for a, a period of time. But if Christ is in it, it's not going to fail. That's what he's saying. If we stay dependent on him, we look to him, and we 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 do discipleship, as we're going to see, as he's, as he's mapped it out in the New Testament, then we're going to see that Christ is going to make sure that all of his sheep end up before him on the final day fully glorified and he has purposed to use you to do it to be part of that process so this, those are, these are incredible promises, incredible truths we have to grab onto if we're going to be faithful in enduring and discipling over the long haul, these are things that drive me whenever I'm beat, I'm tired and discouraged, said the wrong thing you know, it's like I come back to these, these truths, Christ is with me success is certain all right? So, again, there's a lot more we can say about this text. I just want to give you an anchor text, Matthew 28. This is sort of the the, uh, the thumbnail sketch of discipling, the clarion call, the command that you and I want to be familiar with um, as we're thinking about our role in this process. Now, yep. Yeah, go ahead.
2: I heard a message in this one quite a while back, and it brought a little bit closer culture to home to me. Sure.
0: And you have to correct me because I, I don't know Greek and all this other stuff. But this word in... Um, and all, all nations the Greek word this particular guy is ethnic group which really brought it more home because if we think of nations we think of nation
1: but if we bring it down to ethnic group that could be our neighbor it could be
0: some yeah. guy somebody down the street it's the disciples said, bring it to all nations bring it to all ethnic group you can bring it really close to home versus the connotation of a nation seems overwhelming sure yeah We'll, we'll talk about the kind of the practicality of that. I think the scope in that verse is kind of echoing back to Genesis 1 and 2, where Adam, as a representative of all the nations that would come from him and, and the, the table of nations in Genesis 10, that through the messianic king now, all the nations are going to come to be obedient to Christ, just like the prophet said. So, um, but yes, we can look at the kind of the practical. You're saying essentially your point, if I'm understanding you correctly, is this kind of sounds overwhelming. Right, and if I just think about it more, like, hey, my neighbor might be a different ethnicity than me, so then I'm filling the Great Commission in you know, that way. Yes, we're all we're going to see this Great Commission has its its strategic and how it's working out. So that's where we're going to go next. So we'll look at the what I'm calling um, this next text, uh, which is the Book of Acts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry, we, we don't have enough time to go over the whole Book of Acts. <laughs> Um, I'm calling it the program, okay? Because Christ, some people say this, there's no program for discipleship. Well, I would, I, would, I would beg to differ. There is a program, and it's called the church. All right, it's called the church. This is God's program for fulfilling his, his mission to make disciples. This is how Matthew 28 is carried out. And we're going to see it sort of in the narrative form in Acts. But Luke's not just giving us a narrative or a historical account. He wants us to see patterns in this that we can learn from so we could say that Matthew 28 is like sort of thumbnail sketch overview and we can watch it carried out through the book of Acts and it's carried out this great commission is carried out in the establishment of healthy churches if you miss anything else from this first intro I want you to nail that all right discipleship is fleshed out has a context And it's the establishment of healthy churches. Discipleship is pursued in and through the local assembly. That is the vision, the New Testament vision for discipleship. Or like we said, we can say it like this. God has a program for discipleship, and it's called the church. And so, as we study the book of Acts, lest you are afraid that we're going to go through the whole thing, um, Acts has some patterns that are... Are repeating. If you go, if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2, we see the Great Commission fleshed out and, and we see see certain patterns emerge in how this happens. So let me give them to you up front, and then we'll look at a couple examples. Initially, there's the preaching of the gospel. Okay, right, so the so the Great Commission comes down to Christ's disciples or his apostles. And then in Acts, we see them preaching the gospel. There's calls to repent and believe for people who are opposed to Christ. And then there's descriptions of people turning or converting to Christ, being baptized, like we saw in Matthew 28. And we'll summarize this sort of first stage of the pattern as conversion. All right, number one, conversion. Almost immediately, this new creation now this individual and the body that they're made up of, this new creation begins to grow, because it's now alive. And it begins to grow toward maturity. These people begin to look and act more like Jesus. And if we pay attention to the details of the stories and acts, we'll learn a lot about how this church grows up to maturity. So we'll summarize the second word of the pattern as maturation. So you have conversion, you just put maturity if you want to. Um, I know maturation is not a word we use a lot, but conversion and maturation. And as the church is maturing, as it's growing, something interesting happens. It begins to produce a surplus of leaders. Surplus of leaders. The church identifies and installs more leaders, deacons, elders, or proto-deacons, we could say, deacons before they were called that, They begin to install these leaders, and they they install these leaders for sustained future growth for the church. So remember, part of the Great Commission is the church grows up to maturity. They learn to obey all that Christ has commanded. So these leaders are installed so that this continues to happen after the time of the apostles. We'll call this third third repeating pattern leadership. We'll just call it leadership. And then fourth... (coughs) we'll see that that replication ends up happening. These leaders are not simply for the growth of the local churches. They are, they are that. But remember, there's often a surplus of leaders. Why is that? Because the Lord intends those churches to replicate. The Lord intends to launch these men to multiply. And the process starts all over again. Acts shows us how this Great Commission expands out first to Jerusalem... To Judea and Samaria, and finally to the nations or to the ends of the earth, to Rome, the heart of the, the Gentile world. And we'll call this last stage replication. So there's a pattern, there's conversion, and those people grow in they, they become they start maturing. Then that then there's a surplus of leaders, and then there's replication. So let's just take a few examples really quick. Uh, Acts 2 Peter preaches the gospel to these Jews who killed Jesus in Jerusalem. So most of Acts 2 is his sermon. In verse 37, he kind of brings it down to home. They're convicted. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They do that. Many believed and were baptized, and the first church of Jerusalem was planted. And they came out of Judaism, and they were added to this new thing that hadn't been named yet. So they were added that day. Uh, it said the Lord added to their number in verse 47. Day by day, those who were being saved. In verse 41, actually, sorry. Uh, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So again, a bunch of Jews convert to Jesus, and now they're added to something new. There's a new group here, and that's the, the first church of Jerusalem. So there's our first step, conversion. But next, notice immediately... They devote themselves to the corporate life of this new thing, this new assembly. Look like down in verse 42. They devoted themselves. So not just did they do something. They, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, likely communion there, and the prayers. This is all corporate. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles' And all who believed were together and had all things in common, so now they're sharing things. Luke is presenting them as fulfilling the law here. They were all selling their possessions and belonging and dis- and distri- uh, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And again, you just, you see this sort of description as they're, they're devoting themselves to teaching, the apostles teaching day by day, learning more, learning more, learning more. What's happening? They're growing. They're sharing things. They're meeting needs. they their, that's what we call vibrant body life is starting to take root right here in the Jerusalem church after their conversion so there's, a, there's maturation and this growth in vibrant body life, it led to more conversions right there in Jerusalem so um, they were growing, they were getting clarity they were going to share them with their Jewish brothers and sisters calling them to repent and believe they were getting clarity and then the Lord is adding their number day by day verse 47 of chapter 2 so conversion, maturation And as the church grows, it continues to mature, and really what Luke draws out in the next few chapters is it it starts maturing through suffering. So suffering is another one of those tools in Acts that the sovereign Lord in heaven, who's now enthroned, he uses to strengthen and grow his church. It's arguably one of his chief tools. So they're growing. This church is growing and maturing, even through suffering. And there's a growing potential for new leaders to be identified because now you have this maturing core of people in Jerusalem. They're growing. And we see this first batch over in Acts 6. We might call them the the first, the the, the deacons before they were deacons. The guys who were going to help the apostles carry out ministry. You know the story. We don't need to read it. There's obviously a con- There's a conflict among the widows, and then they need people to... Um, it's too much for the apostles to handle, so they appoint these seven men to help. But the point there is that these are men full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, like they're mature men. Where'd they come from? They came from that maturing body, right? So the Lord is raising up these men in addition to the apostles, and I'll just note two of them for you. Stephen and Philip, okay? Stephen and Philip in Acts 6. And then notice what else he includes here, which is very interesting. We see the next batch after these, these deacons, before they were deacons, this next batch from the mass conversion of the priesthood. Look down in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase... And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So again, more leaders being added here. Conversion of the priesthood, Acts 6:7. So now we've got this, this church has been this this they've been converted, they're they assembled together, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to body life. They're growing, suffering is coming, they're continuing to grow. The mission continues. Now there's leaders that are being raised up. But notice, it's not just for the Jerusalem church because what's the mission? To all nations, right? So one of these leaders, Stephen, is really lighting it up when it comes to preaching. He preaches a powerfully convicting sermon in the rest of chapter 6. It's so powerful that it gets him stoned to death. And not only did his sermon get him killed personally, but it elicited a great persecution on the church in Jerusalem. Look down at the, the end of chapter 7. Well, I'm sorry, it's the beginning of chapter 8. So this is after they've stoned him. Saul approved of his execution, chapter 8. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So there was already persecution. That was a great one. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So people are being scattered, even though Stephen, is one of these leaders, has now died. His death is the, is the fire for the next, the next stage of the mission. That's just what the risen Christ wanted, because he uses it, this persecution, to send another leader, Philip, to the next phase of the mission, to Judea and Samaria. You see that, verse four. Now, those who were scattered, those who were scattered about, went preaching the word. Philip, that's one of the men that were raised up back in chapter six. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed it into Christ. So Philip plants a church in Samaria in chapter eight, and then he goes on down and, and he plants other churches in, in, the, in the region of, of kind of where the Philistines were, and in, um, historically, and in Judea. So I just want you to observe you got the Mother Church that's planted in Jerusalem, there's conversions happen, maturity is is taking place, a group of leaders is raised up, and God takes from the surplus and uses it to expand the mission. Alright? That's example number one in the Jerusalem church. Let's look at one more. Let's look at the Antioch Church. It pains me to skip these few chapters here. Because they're absolutely central, but we won't for the sake of time. Acts eleven nineteen. Luke makes sure, even though he's he's given us a lot of material in between, he makes sure that we don't miss the connection back to the persecution that he just talked about. This started with Stephen. Okay? Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they're going to... Basically what, what they're saying here, what Luke is telling us, is that Philip wasn't the only one launched from Jerusalem. There were others. Several unnamed disciples launch out, and they go all the way to Antioch, verse 20, and they plant a church there. They start sharing the gospel. Conversions start happening. In verses 19 to 21... It says verse twenty-one, the hand of the Lord is with them, and a great number who believe turn to the Lord, and it was a big deal. So once Jerusalem, once the church up there got word of this conversion in Antioch, they send another leader from the surplus named Barnabas, that Paul introduced to us, or that excuse me, that Luke introduced to us earlier. They send Barnabas to this church to encourage them, and more growth happens. So, again, there's the the maturation in verses 22 and 24. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's maturity language. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So he's a faithful, qualified leader. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Implication, because of his ministry. So maturity is happening. Growth is happening. But the growth was so much that Barnabas needed help to properly shepherd all these people. So he goes and gets Paul. Finds Paul, which Paul has already been introduced to us also in those chapters we skipped. Um, the arch nemesis of the church, converted by Christ, one who has all authority. He said, yep, I'm going to turn you around and I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. So Barnabas goes and gets this guy. And Paul and Barnabas together teach this church for over a year. Okay, you see that? Over a year. They mature so much in this Antioch place. This is the first place that unbelievers recognize the growth of these people and they call them little Christs because they resemble Jesus, Christians. That's shorthand for the fact that these people were known for their discipleship, for their growth in Christ. They were willing to even send an offering back to the mothership, back to Jerusalem when there was a famine. This freshly planted church saying, hey, our Jerusalem brothers and sisters are suffering. I want to send them relief at the end of chapter 11. So you got conversion, maturation in Antioch happening, obviously. And after some time had passed in this church, the next time we hear about Antioch and the church in Antioch is in chapter 13. And what do we see there? This church is full of prophets and teachers. Huh. Look at that. A, a maturing church has Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaen, and Saul. And so we think, wow, Luke tells us that, that it's, it's full of leadership, and it's out of this surplus then that God calls out Paul and Barnabas for the next phase, for the next church planting mission. And so there's our, there's our replication. This team is launched out in chapter 13. They go to Cyprus. They go to another Antioch. They go to Iconium. They go to Lystra. They go to Derbe. They're suffering the whole way for the Jews, but they're planting churches. They're planting churches. Now, flip over to chapter 14 and I just want you to see this summary. This is at the end of that list of cities that I just mentioned to you, down in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that was Derby, the last one, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. So, Put your finger there. Pause. Look up at me. So when conversions had happened in all these places, bam, 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 bam. Churches were planted. They stop. They go back. Bam, 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 bam. And what do they do when they go back? They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening, that's maturity language, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that, notice, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. One of Paul and, ba- Paul and Barnabas's chief aim in this com- going back and strengthening these, these churches was that they would have a theology of suffering, that they would understand that suffering is ordained by God for their development and growth. That's like one of the one of the main things he, that they want to make sure is established in these young churches. So either strengthening them under maturity, they're making sure they're growing. And notice, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So again, you see their concerns for their maturity. Part of that involves establishing leaders. Why do you think Paul might have done that? Because it's well, yeah, they gotta, there's, you got to think of, of a succession plan for sure for Paul. But what do you think Paul's intention was for all these churches? It's Cyprus, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Replicate. Replicate. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious by now, right? Like what the pattern is. So yes, this is in the drinking water. And I think Luke draws this out and shows us the methodology because he wants the churches that are reading Acts to see the pattern. To see the pattern. See how the Great Commission is being carried out. So why am I dragging you through all these details? I'm trying to show you that God has a discipleship program. And it's the planting of churches, the maturation of churches, leadership training in churches so that they can go plant more churches. It's the ministry of the local church. As you and I seek to make disciples, we need to make disciples in and through the church. Now, I'm hammering this because my main ministry is with Liberty University students. And there's a parachurch ministry going on out there that's outside of the confines of the church. A lot of good stuff's happening at Liberty. I'm not dogging it. But it's it's not the church. So people are getting involved in discipleship and programs and all kinds of things, and they experience lots of problems as a result of it because they're not (coughs) yielding to this method, which is in and through the local church with faithful elders that are able to replicate. The church is designed by Christ for our growth, and within itself has its seed, the seeds of its own replication. Christ creates disciples through the proclamation of his word. He gathers them into assemblies. He grows those assemblies through preaching, through body life, and especially through suffering, and he raises up these future leaders within those bodies. He authenticates those leaders, and he launches those leaders out to plant more churches, all with the authority of Christ behind it. That's, that's the stream we want to be in. You know, we're thinking about discipleship as we're, as we're coming to this, this topic. We can't think of discipling as an only individual effort outside of the confines of the, of the local church. As we meet with people, as we counsel them, as we help them grow as individuals, we have to do it underneath the auspices of the church, underneath elders, in this flow they need faithful teaching they need shepherding from elders they need to experience the wide array of gifts within the body from a diversity of people they need corporate worship they need the ordinances they need you too but they need all that as well and all of this works together in discipleship for their maturity and we've got to see that the church is the place it's the place, it's the context where discipling happens it's the greenhouse, it's the incubator Or like we said, it's God's discipleship program. Now, that's the 10,000-foot view. We're going to keep pressing on, and if you have questions, we can stay afterwards and and talk through those. That's the 10,000-foot view from Acts, from the top. There's a lot more we can talk about. It's how the Great Commission was carried out by the early church in the macro. And Luke intends this pattern as a pattern, as a model for us to follow. But what about the micro level? At the local church level. All right, so we've got the Great Commission, the thumbnail. We've got the macro kind of okay. We'll see the context. What about the micro? What about the, the at the local church level? How does growth and maturity actually happen? How do the various pieces work together, the leaders and the members, to fulfill the Great Commission? Well, our third and final text sketches out this process for us. Is Ephesians four. So this is fairly familiar territory. If you think of Acts as sort of the narrative version, Ephesians 4 is the epistolary version of, of what you see happening in Acts. <coughs> really, all of Ephesians takes us through this process. Chapter 1, you have the sovereign choice of God in, in determining and choosing His people. Chapter 2, they they're brought how that happens, they're brought from death to life, conversion. They're added to the church, end of chapter 2, chapter 3. And now it's how the the maturing process happens in and through the church is what he's about to describe in chapter 4. And I've I've given you some headings there in your outline. Um, Really, it's very simple. It's very simple. How this works, what the process is, is that at your conversion, every single one of you, Christ saved you to use you. So he's given you gifts to be used and leveraged, uh, fanned into flame. If you want to use that, grow, you can grow in those things. But he's given you, by his sovereign choice, gifts to be used for the growth of his body. All of us. No member excluded. That's point number one. Christ gifts the body, and he gifts it for growth. All right, so look with me down in, in chapter seven, uh, uh, verse 7 of chapter 4 but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he's just talked about the unity, now he's of the body, now he's pivoting and talking about the diversity. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's saying every single one of us are indispensable for the growth of the body. He's given each one of us a gift, spiritual gift at least one. We could say it here is grace for ministry. Grace gifts, these are specific gifts given to you by Christ that he expects you to use. And he expects you to use them for the edification of his church. You've been outfitted by Christ himself to help others grow, or like we're saying here, to disciple them. That means you're indispensable to this body at Timberlake by Christ's very design. If you've joined here, you're indispensable. And maybe we could say it like this. It displeases Christ. We don't want to do that. It displeases Christ when we are not useful to Him in the body. If you aren't actively participating in the discipleship culture, the church is not as healthy as God intends it to be. You are the broken finger, and broken fingers are not good. There's no neutrality in the body of Christ. Either you are growing and healthy and on the mend and actively contributing, or you're dead weight. And you're slowing down the growth of the body. You're harming the body by the dead weight. It's a myth to think we can be neutral in this process. Christ has given you a free grace gift and he expects you to max it out for, the, for his glory and for the good of others. And this is the most fulfilling life. If you're hearing, if you're sitting here hearing me say these things and you're like, oh, another thing to do. You know, like in the midst of a busy life. That's not the point. This is the most fulfilling uh, most rewarding at uh, lasts from from your conversion to the end of your life there's always a mission to be about we always have a purpose but here's the here's the here's the issue and i love ephesians 4 for this reason we often don't feel very useful amen even as pastor sometimes i don't feel very useful when we first come to christ We are babes in Christ. We need a lot of feeding. We need a lot of burping. We need some naps. And when we're trapped by habitual patterns of sin, our usefulness is limited. And Christ knows that, which is why he outfits the body the way he has with leadership. That's exactly where he goes. Leaders equip the body. Look in verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. So he's given these leaders. We won't get into all the details here. But these are leaders that he's identifying. Gifts that he's identifying because they're word-based gifts. Meaning they're these men through whom the truth comes. So you've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. You know, apostles and prophets are the foundation Evangelists are guys like Philip that we just saw. He's taking the gospel out. These pastors and teachers are for the, for the maturity of the saints in a, in a given place. So you've got this diversity of gifts in the first century. We're still using the apostles and prophets, by the way. That's what we shepherd by. So you've got this diversity of gifts, and these leaders are given to equip, Paul says, the saints. So you and I need pastoral equipping via the writings of the apostles and the prophets. So what does that mean? All right, You can think of equipping as, here's a short definition for you, it's restoration from sin to usefulness. Okay, Restoration is one half of it, from sin toward usefulness, and then preparation toward usefulness. Right? So I'm walking in sin. I'm enslaved, you know, even though, even though I'm a Christian. So this pastor, this discipler gets a hold of me. They help me triage that, figure it out, work through it. Now I'm turning from that. That's equipping. It's the first step. And now I'm becoming useful. Now they're teaching me how to be useful, okay, in the body. They're mending me. It's not just, don't think of pastoral equipping as like, oh, I've got problems. They're just going to help me get fixed. No, my job is to not help you get fixed, but turn you... Fix you, yes. Turn you so that you are useful in a, in a contributing body member. It's not enough to just put a cast on your finger; It's to get that finger working again, so it can grab the cup and you know drink the water or whatever. So that's the goal of, of shepherding. It's restoration from sin to usefulness, preparation toward usefulness. So how does it happen? How does this equipping happen? Well, obviously, we just saw a lot of it from Acts in a descriptive way, but there's teaching. Week in and week out, formal, informal, public, private. There's counseling. There's modeling. So your leaders are trying to model these things for you imperfectly. But we're trying to show you how this stuff works, how truth and life connect. We try to come alongside and affirm you in your gifts and help you identify those and, and flourish in those gifts. We connect your gifts with needs in the body. We say, hey, I know this person that could really use you, and so... We try to do that. So those are all. There's a lot more we could talk about there. How equipping happens, but just a nutshell of, of how it's how it happens. And again, this equipping happens in and through the church, right? So our corporate worship services. Pastor Brian is discipling all of us in Romans. Okay, discipleship. He's discipling all of us in Romans. Equipping like <coughs> equipping classes like these. I mean, we named them equipping classes uh, from this verse. <laughs> um, we're trying to equip you uh, to be useful. And equally as important, if not more, than equipping classes is a Sunday school ministry. Because the way that we break down shepherding in this church, there's a lot of people here, is we put our pastors, our elders, other teachers, across the board in the Sunday school <coughs> classes, and these pastors, teachers are focusing on their little mini flock within the within the body. So we're each trying to Raise up a leadership team. Identify future leaders from within our little ministry areas. Invest in those people who can replicate and invest in other people. So it kind of works from the top down all the way down through Sunday school. So if you're not in a Sunday school ministry, that would be like homework number one. Get involved in, in Sunday school and don't just come on Sunday morning, okay? Because that's getting you in the flow of this discipleship process. And notice, what are you being equipped for? What does he say here? Verse 12. Okay, the work of ministry. And then there's a parallel phrase that helps clarify it. What is the work of ministry? Yeah, anything that builds up the body. The work of ministry is anything that builds up the body. So, Paul has (coughs) been hammering this theme of good works, that we're created in Christ Jesus now for good works back in chapter 2. He's prepared them beforehand for us to walk in. Um, He's going to give us Examples ad nauseum in chapter 5 of what these are in Ephesians. But right here, he's saying, you're being equipped by these pastors for these very things uh, that Ephesians is spelling out for us, and the rest of the New Testament spells out for us as well. So you're being equipped for this work of ministry, which is the edification of the saints. It results in the building up of the saints, this corporate body. And it's summarized in verse 16. Here's another phrase you could throw on there, what this, what you're being equipped for speaking the truth in love verse 15 that's how the body grows speaking the truth in love so in other words our job as a pastoral team is to equip you to have clarity in the truth so that you're living it out you're applying it day by day in your life progressively over time you're getting the logs out of your eye so that you can see clearly to help other people get the logs out of theirs that's the speaking the truth and you're doing it in this motivation of love, the love of Christ because that's how you've been loved. Christ has loved you. He's going to talk about that in, at the end of chapter 4, start of chapter 5. We'll be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us. So we're speaking the truth. That's our whole ministry. We're going to be truthful. The church is the pillar in support of the truth. We're like the truth center. All right? But it's clothed in the love of Christ as we're pursuing people in love to dispel the lies and help them walk in the truth. So that's the goal, and as you do that, look what happens. It's point number C on your outline, letter C. I do that all the time, all right? As the leaders equip this body, the body grows the body. That's the end goal of this process. Look in verse 13. So this is happening until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, hear that word, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, when each part, that's you, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. There's the verb, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Literally, if you take, if you strip away this sentence, it would say, the body, subject, makes the body grow. I love that. Because it's an every member ministry. This isn't just the pastors make the body grow. This is the pastors equip the saints so that the body grows. So the way I like to think of it is there's always a core of the ministry that's being equipped and growing, and guess what? It's out of that core that the future leaders bring up, right? The future leaders are identified out of that core. But there's a core in the church that's growing, they're putting off, putting on, they're growing in discernment that Paul's going to talk about here in just a few more verses. And they are able now to have clarity to help other people grow. And guess what happens? Ministry compounds. You can't contain it. Ministry compounds because it's in people and now that's rippling out. And you see conversions, you see the baptismal waters are going to be filled up. Why? That's not because we're a great, no, this, this whiz church. It's because we have our heads down, all of you guys have your heads down and we're trying to disciple one another. And so the Lord is adding to our number just like we see in, in Acts. And the exciting thing about this, we're gonna, I'm going to end with this, okay? The exciting thing about this is I think we're in a stage where we're seeing we're we're on the cusp of a surplus of leaders. So what we're thinking is, what's the Lord going to do? How's He going to how's He going to send us? And we're sobered as we think about how suffering often propels the mission. But it's interesting to see how the Lord is, has been working this process through the last these last decades, even in the life of TBC, and we've even seen this process replicate. So again. High level, we're going to end here. Um, This is just a quick sketch of what I would describe as a biblical vision of discipleship. And the core purpose of this lesson is to show you how the church is right at the center of it. So as we're going to work for the next five weeks at sort of the interpersonal side of discipling, like how do we do it as individuals with other individuals, I want this... um, is the lens through which we're looking at this? As we're looking at discipleship. Does that make sense? Good. So, if you have questions, we'd love to connect. Uh, we ran out of time tonight. Next week, we're going to look at the roadmap, becoming an effective discipler, what's involved. And the first on the list is that we need to be living a life at some level that's worthy of following. Okay? So I'm not talking about perfection. Nobody's perfect. But there needs to be some baseline things in our lives. We'll talk about that. They're not insurmountable, but some baseline things in our lives that when we say follow me, we're going to be able to actually pass some of these things on to other people. All right? So that's, gonna be, that's that's the modeling side of the discipling process. Okay, let's pray. Father, we covered a lot of ground tonight. Your word is rich. But we look to you as our God and King we look to Christ who's risen and exalted on high who's with us right now and I pray Lord that your spirit would take these truths from your word and encourage convict and above all motivate us to be better disciples that we would lean in we would learn from one another and from your word in this process help us as we're going to look at next week to be diligent in our own hearts of being faithful followers of you and uh, we're looking for fruit we pray for fruit uh, we're excited for fruit we've seen fruit that you've produced and we long for more we long to see this church replicate and play our part in the great commission and we ask it all in christ's name amen